this morning uh, we're going to, Lord willing, work through Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. This is uh, doubtless a, a familiar text uh, to most. This is the word of God. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes. My son, Abraham replied, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, 
on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Before we work through this text together, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that by your Spirit, you will uh, open your word to us, help us to uh, profit by it, help us to understand it, help us to see you in it, and lead us to respond as we ought uh, to your truth. Father, I pray that your Spirit this morning will work in every heart and mind. You alone know the circumstances of our week. You alone know the circumstances of our uh, interior fears and hopes. You know those who are grieving. You know those who are rejoicing. You know those who are rejoicing in grief. And we pray that this morning, in a special work of grace, your Spirit will just give to everyone what they need as individuals and as families. Father, we do think in in a special way this morning of... uh, the extended Fisher family. And we pray that you will give them comfort and strength and and also joy in the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for you alone are worthy to be thanked for the life and legacy of George. We thank you for all all the gifts that you gave him, which he used to honor your name and be a blessing to others. And we thank you for his witness and example, for his love and his prayers. And we acknowledge this morning that as much as he served in the church, he did more for this church through his prayers than through his physical acts of service. And only you know the blessings we have because of the time that he spent on his knees. So, Lord, we thank you that even now he is in your presence and even now he sees you. Even now he he sings songs of praise that are more profound than what we have sung this morning. Out of a heart that is pure and without sin. With a mind that is not, that does not distort your truth through sinful filters. And we confess that in regards to worship, we are very jealous of him this morning. Prepare us through Christ to join one day in that heavenly choir. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you get here in Genesis 22, you've worked through, as we looked at last week, the call of Abraham coming out of a very difficult context at the end of chapter 11. 
and all the vicissitudes and difficulties of life that he experiences, some of which we don't have time to talk about. But you arrive here after God in Genesis 17, reiterating covenant blessings to Abraham, giving him the covenant sign of circumcision previous, and also then promising him that Ishmael will not be his heir. A son from his own body with Sarah, his wife, will be his heir. And, and Abraham's 99 years old. This is ridiculous. Uh, and yet, he trusts God. He believes God. Isaac is born. Ishmael is sent away. Abraham has already lost one son. And then sometime later, after all of the miracle, after all of the joy, after all of the laughter, God hasn't spoken, at least not in a recorded sense, for a long time. It's sometime later the text begins. It's a long period of time. Isaac has grown up now enough to, to carry a heavy load of wood, which he will do in this narrative. Not, not just being weaned, not just a little child. He, he's becoming strong. And God speaks again. And God tests Abraham. Something that the reader knows, but Abraham didn't at that time. That's very important to understand. Just like Job, we're given, the, in the introduction, in the frame of the narrative, we're told what Job never knows. That is, the conversation that's going on in heaven. So Abraham doesn't know this is a test. The answer isn't in the back of the book. God calls him to test him. I think it is, it is worth saying that uh, Satan tempts us to ruin us and destroy us, but God tests us to refine us and to purify us. Some of the same event can be, in a, we looked at this in Sunday school this morning with, with God and human agents, frankly, sometimes the same event, God and Satan are simultaneously at work. One to destroy and one to bring purification and refining. But God is the one who's ultimately in control. Satan acts in the Job narrative, but he does not go beyond God's sovereign control of him. Satan doubtless plagued Abraham during this time. But God is the one who is ultimately testing him. Abraham replies, here I am. This is, this is not merely a, a statement of physical position. Sort of, God, I'm over here. It's a declaration of being ready and willing to serve. Here I am. I'm prepared. What do you want me to do? After being given covenant blessings, your name will be great. I am your shield, your very great reward. You will have a son. Your descendants, kings will come from your body. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. When God speaks to Abraham, Abraham is used to God speaking to articulate nothing but blessing. To the point where, for many of us, frankly, we are so blessed that we almost can't imagine God saying anything else or introducing anything else into our lives. We're so familiar with blessing that all of a sudden a time of testing seems unfair or wrong or harsh or cruel. 
Because we're so used to God treating us with such kindness and goodness and faithfulness and blessing. Abraham was not expecting these words in verse 2. These words are utterly, utterly horrifying. God speaks with deliberate intention to culminate the feeling that's growing in Abraham as Abraham is trying to figure out, am I hearing this properly? Take your son. Your only son. Ishmael's gone. May I remind you that this special son is the one you love. Now go. That's what God said when he first called Abraham in Genesis 12. Go. Same thing. Go. Your only son whom you love is going to die by your hand. I'll show you where later. Just like I showed you the promised land after you started your, your, your trip, go to the region of Moriah. I'll show you a mountain there, and that's where you're going to sacrifice your son to me. It is, of course, not, not possible for us to know what it feels like to get that command. There's a point in which, although you always want to try to put yourself into the shoes of the characters at different times, there's also a point in which you just have to recognize that you, you, you really can't even imagine. What happened that night as Abraham thought through these things? What wrestling was there in his heart, I don't know. But I do know this, he didn't disobey and he didn't wait. Early the next morning, he got up, he loaded his donkey. He brought with him two servants. Now the servants are really introduced just to be left behind. They don't have any function. Uh, they're, they're basically introduced so that Abraham can leave them behind so that he and his son are isolated. It just heightens the sense of isolation. But notice this. He doesn't have the servants cut the wood. He himself does. Knowing that every, every time he chops that wood, he himself, with his own hand, is preparing the fire that will kill his son. He himself takes upon himself the responsibility of preparing the fire that his son will be sacrificed in. And then he set out. On the third day, he looked up and he saw the place. And he says to the servants, the servants who are just introduced to be left behind, he says to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We, plural, will worship you and then we, plural, will come back to you. Now that is very interesting. I don't know when Abraham begins to sort some of this out. But Abraham is already at this point convinced 
that he is going to obey God and sacrifice his son, and we, that is, myself and my son, are coming back. And how, how do you sort that? Well, he took the wood, verse 6, he placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So they're going forward. He's not leaving the fire and the knife behind. He fully expects to use these things. He fully expects that he himself is going to put his son to death. He fully expects that his son's body will be consumed on the fire. And he fully expects that both of them are coming back. Hebrews 11 says that one of the great marks of Abraham's faith is that Abraham reasoned it out this way. God can raise the dead. See, what this is, it's not so much. Because this can become very cruel. It is not so much, well, listen, Abraham was an old man, and Isaac was special to him. He loved Isaac. And so Isaac was a bit of an idol in his life. And so the test is really, Abraham, what's your idol? Do you love your son more than me? That's an inescapable element of it. It's an inescapable element that, that the test is, will I give up what I love? But there's no hint anywhere that Abraham loves Isaac inordinately. There's no hint anywhere in the text that, a, that Isaac is an idol to him. And so this becomes almost unspeakably cruel when people suffer loss. Because what it does is it creates a judgmental spirit. Where it's like, well, the Lord must have been trying to teach them something. Maybe, maybe that was an idol in their life that God needed to remove. Maybe, maybe there are times when that's true, but you can't get out of that out of this text. Now, what's the test? The test is, is more basic than that. Yes, you love your son. Yes, yes. Of course, of course. The test is this. Do you actually in your heart of hearts, believe the promise of God. Because God said, Abraham, through this son, you are going to have an enormous multitude of, of descendants through this son. And Abraham says, okay, I believe that. Lord, I believe I'm going to have a great number of descendants through this son. And then God says, you're going to kill that son. And Abraham says, but that's the son through whom all the descendants are coming. How can this be? The question is, can God be faithful to his promises no matter what? That's the test. And as Abraham is reasoning it out, he says, if I kill my son, God's going to have to raise him from the dead. There has to be a pre-resurrection resurrection. He's not thinking resurrection categories, you understand. He's just thinking about resuscitation. No matter what, God is going to be faithful to his promises. That's what Abraham believes. We will come back. As they go on, verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, 
Abraham replied. Very interesting. Not much vocabulary, just, just four words there. But, uh, but notice it's, it's father-son. That, that's, that's, that relationship is being emphasized. Father-son. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. There's actually an ambiguity in the Hebrew grammar here, which is difficult to bring over into English. It might be along the lines of, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, that is, an answer. Or it might be, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, that is, a statement of identity of the lamb. That is, my son, you are the bird, you are the lamb. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. One can scarcely imagine. He bound his son Isaac, and I, so Abraham, he, he's in his hundreds now. George Fisher was sprightly and strong, remarkably so. And yet, I dare say that I probably could have overpowered him near the end. Not if he had his bread machine gun, but, but just, you know, just, just and of course, you know, I said, well, well, that's not a big deal. I could overpower anyone, and you'd be right. Uh, so let's, let, let's say someone else. Uh, you, Isaac here is almost certainly, he's carrying this heavy load of wood. He's at a position where he can resist his father physically. But he doesn't. Abraham binds Isaac, but Isaac submits to being bound. Isaac himself is imitating the faith of his father. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar, on top of the wood that he himself had cut and he himself had arranged. Then he reached out his hand, and he took his knife, not to cut the bounds, not to cut the rope, but to slay his son. When he did so, he had no expectation other than that the knife in his hand was going to flash down and he hoped his stroke was accurate and sure so his son didn't suffer. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! And Abraham, through it all, says exactly what he said the first time God called, to him, God called to him in verse 1. Here I am. God, I am still here prepared to do what you want. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. That was probably, that was probably good news. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up 
And there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is, this is pure substitutionary sacrifice. A pure substitution of death. Life for life. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provides a substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac can live. Now, it's not too often. I don't, I don't know how much, you know, study study you do when it comes to the Bible. There are, there are scholars who write um, Bible commentaries. And they try to explain text and all the rest. Usually it's usually heavily, uh, the better ones are usually freighted pretty heavily into the like, original language grammar and all the rest. Really a joy to read. And, and it's not very often that a commentator actually says something really, really helpful. It's almost sad if you think about the number of hours spent in them and the number of real good things you get out of them. But here's one. Victor Hamilton, who's actually written a very serviceable two-volume commentary on Genesis, notes this, and I think this is essential for framing or for understanding the text. Hamilton notes rightly and profoundly The place is called the Lord will provide, not Abraham obeyed. And that is exactly right. This mountain is not a monument to the obedience of Abraham. It is a monument to the provision of the Lord. Your life is not a monument to your obedience. It is about the provision of God's grace in your life. That's what it is. The Lord will provide. To this day, it is not said, on that mountain, Abraham obeyed. It is said, on that mountain, the Lord provided. It's the Lord who does these things. This story is not about Abraham. It's about the Lord who provides. Your life is not about you. It's about the Lord who provides for you and in you and through you. That's what your life is about. And, and so whether it's... it's the times of, of laughter and joy and miracle, or it's the times of, of heartache and, and gut-wrenching agony where you're doing all you can to trust the promises of God. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. And perhaps you can look at times in your life that were really difficult. You say, well, that, you know what? It wasn't about you. It was. You were there. You were involved. But it was about the Lord providing. It was about the Lord bringing you through. It was about the Lord teaching you. As the psalmist says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The Lord will provide. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the sea. The blessings are the same. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You are aligned with my covenant promises. Now, I would make a long argument if I had time, which I don't. 
to suggest that here the angel of the Lord calling to Abraham is not merely an angel. In my judgment, it's the second person in the Trinity. I'll tell you why. Well, I won't tell you why. I don't have time. That'd be the argument. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Um, I'll, I'll give you just, just, a, just a few little snippets of why. A little bit. A little bit. There are times when the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is so identified with Yahweh, with God, that you can't separate them. So that to see him is to see God. To wrestle with him which will happen in Genesis, is to wrestle with God. He even receives worship. He, he, he ascends in the smoke of sacrifice. And so there seems to be angels, but also the angel of the Lord, who is so tightly identified with who God is, that he seems to be God, yet speak for God. Well, who does that? Well, it seems that would be the word. The Logos. Second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity doesn't begin to exist with the birth of Jesus. You do understand that. He is not uninvolved and absent from history, from time and space. The word angel literally just means messenger. That's all it means. So that the word angel in both Hebrew and Greek is applied to what we would call angel angels, but also to human beings. Human beings are called angels because... They're just messengers. It depends on context. So not every reference to an angel is a reference to metaphysics or ontology or to natural being. It can be a reference to function. In fact, in many contexts, angel isn't referring to the being at all. It's referring to the function of delivering a message. Which is why human beings are often called angels in Scripture. No, we don't translate it that way into English, you understand. People get confused. But that's all the word means. Messenger. Who is... The messenger of God, ultimately. Well, what is a message? The message is a word. Who's the word? Second person of the Trinity. Who was with God and is God. And so although I would make, that, I would make a biblical case for it, a tremendous length, this is why I'm saying these things, just so you know. So I think what's going on here is, is, is actually reasonably amazing. Because the offspring, the great seed through whom all nations on earth will be blessed is who? In the New Testament, who is it? Christ, exactly. So I think what you have going on in this one text is I think that you have three, three references to Christ. One is he's actually speaking. Two, he's speaking about himself. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That is, here I believe Christ himself is predicting what Christ is going to do. The great fulfillment of the promise is explaining the promise and fulfillment to Abraham from heaven. But not only that. At another level, this whole thing is an enacted historical prophecy. Of a time coming when Abraham's son, through who, on whom all of the covenant promises really hinge, is going to be sacrificed on a hill. 
And so this whole historical event also has prophetic function in building a category for what is going to happen to Christ. Who is speaking about himself? So it is a threefold prophetic event in terms of Jesus. You will remember, when Jesus is baptized, there's a voice from heaven. What does that voice say? This is my son, what? Whom I love. That's Genesis 1-2. It's an obvious echo. It's not an echo. It's a quote. Take your son. For God so loved the world that he sent his what? His one and only son. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Where do we find a father who sacrifices his one and only beloved son? Where do we find the son who is the son of fulfillment of Abrahamic promises, who is also the conduit of blessing to the world? Where do we find a mountain on which the Lord provides a substitutionary sacrifice? Interestingly enough, the region of Moriah, where Abraham is, is precisely where the temple was built, where all the sacrificial system was sort of executed. Christ is sacrifice, priest, and temple. This whole event is taking place precisely where all of that complex was later. Isaac himself carries the wood. Jesus himself carried his wood. He carried the cross to the place of execution. Isaac is willingly bound by the Father. The Son, Christ, was willingly bound by the Father. He could have called 10,000 angels to liberate him, but he did not. He submitted to his death. Isaac asks, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? But then says nothing else. Not a word of protest. He says nothing when he is bound and laid on the altar. Jesus Christ, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Figuratively speaking, the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. But the father receives his one and only son literally back from the dead in the resurrection. You see that function? You just need to think it through a little bit. And that's just the obvious stuff. It's a lot more. Oh, I'll leave you to, I'll leave you to, to think about it. I'll just say this. Abraham himself prepares the wood. Abraham himself cuts the wood. Abraham himself arranges the wood. He prepared it. But you do... You do realize that there, there was a time when the cross was a tree. Well, who makes the trees grow? Just that there was, there, there, there was a, a genealogy of tree and seed that eventually resulted in that tree that, that grew to a sufficient size where the wood in it could be used for a table or, or a home or a chair or a cross. And as God was 
was superintending the development, uh, the, the germination of that seed, and and the 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 advancement of the root structure and, and all the organic growth of that tree. The father knew that as, as he was sustaining and growing that tree, that tree was being grown for the purpose of his son's death. Abraham prepared the wood. So did God the Father. But in a perfect providential way, that one tree, wherever it grew, was always from eternity past marked to grow to be the tree in which his son would die. So. Can you trust the promises of God? This is the definitive answer to the question that Genesis has been asking implicitly all along. Can God bring life out of death? You get here, and that issue is made explicit. Can God bring life out of death? Can you trust God with your life? Can you trust God with the lives of people you love, the people you care about? Can you trust God? Can you trust Him? And the Sunday school answer is yes. But real life isn't quite that neat. And what God does here is he shows no matter what, no matter what God calls you to experience, no matter what God calls you to do, no matter what God calls you to walk through, no matter what, nothing is going to stop the promises and plan of God. Nothing. And, and yesterday, we were able, at, at the funeral, to spend a little bit of time, you know, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. And Paul says, well, you're, you're, you're going to think I'm being rhetorical. Well, he is being rhetorical in a technical sense. He says, you're going to think that's just rhetoric. So let me give you a few candidates. What about, um, what about poverty? Nope. What about riches? No. What about sickness? No. What about, what about war? Sword? No. Well, what about, what about time? No. What about, what about something in heaven? No. What about something in hell? What about something on earth? Keep naming it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not time, not space, not death. Nothing. That's a promise. That's a promise. Do you realize that? Do you realize that God has promised you from his own mouth that nothing will ever separate you from his love, not even your death, which means you have to live beyond the grave. The grave is not the severing and the ending of your relationship with God. It's not. Do you believe that? Will you live that way? Will you die that way? With utter and absolute unshakable confidence, not in your obedience and not in your faith. 
but in Christ. That's one of the essential keys to all of this, friends. Do not put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in the object of your faith. It's not, do I believe strong enough? It's, is the one who I believe in strong enough? Trust his promises, no matter what. He's a great God. Can he bring life out of death? Yes, he does, actually. It's not even a theoretical question. He does. He's done it. With Christ, he's actually done it in time and space. He has proven beyond doubt that he will bring eternal, glorified life out of death. That's an incredible thing. You, you live in this world, you live in this universe where there is a resurrected Savior. Do you know that? Like, do you know there's actually a resurrected Savior? It's not a promise for the future, it's already happened. Okay, I can't explain it. I, I don't. I, I don't. I can't. Would would to God that for just even a moment, for one moment in this life before glory, He would peel back all of the insecurity and 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 the sin and the doubt. If we could just, if we could just for one moment, just for one moment, see as George Fisher right now sees, we would never doubt again. But maybe until then, we just walk by faith and not by sight. May God help us. May God help us to enter into a reality where the promises of God are so rich. that they mean more to us and are more sure and solid to us than even our own life. May God help us. I don't have, I don't have the right words on these little point form notes to express what I'm trying to say. So I'll stop. And I'll ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.